You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 is where we'll start this morning. That should seem familiar because it's where we left off last week. And uh, hopefully as you came in this morning, you grabbed an outline. That'll be our guide through our time in God's Word this morning. If you didn't, you're still free to take notes in your phone or however uh, you are looking at God's Word and and taking notes this morning. I I strongly encourage you to do so. And the answers will be on the screen behind me. Um, As Genesis 17, like I said, is where we left off last week. And it's going to be the springboard for us this morning that propels us forward as this was a seminal moment in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And it was also a seminal moment in our faith in looking at everything that took place here at the beginning of Genesis 17 in fulfillment and symbolic nature of everything that took place in Genesis 15 as we've been tracking through the book of Genesis, now we have both the establishment of the covenant and a symbol, a permanent physical reminder of the covenant to ever remind the men, the leaders of the faith and in the home and uh, the, the set forth by God that this is who you serve. And so... Why do we need covenant reminders? It's not just because our memories can't be trusted. Some of us, our memories can't be trusted more than others, but I think all of us can attest to that. It's because covenant reminders continually point our attention and affections and focus toward the one who is faithful to uphold his covenant. They continually put that at the forefront of our minds. They continually put that on, as we see in the Shema, bind them on your wrists, put them on your foreheads, put them on the doorposts of your house so that you can continually be reminded of your God and how he has called us to live. And so as we look at here, the symbol, the reminder of the covenant, the reminder for the purpose to point us to the command of the covenant, God's word. So the the steady shifting of our culture has left God's word at odds with the worldview of the prevailing multitude. I think we could all attest to that. And as we've seen up to this point, this is a shifting in the human heart that has taken place not just in recent history, But from the beginning of time, the shifting in the human heart has taken place so that the value of unborn life is reduced to a matter of convenience in the eyes of the world. So that basic truths that we never imagined would be questioned, such as the designation of male and female, become not just questioned, but they become antiquated in the eyes of the world. Is in times like these that Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 7 of enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those that enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. 
So as we dive into this morning's text, it will be abundantly clear by the end of our time together this morning that the only way for us to be saved, the only way for us to be saved, the only way for us to be justified, the only way for us to be declared righteous before a thrice holy God, the only way for us to be sanctified is by grace, by the grace and provision of the Lord. So I'll ask you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word one more time this morning as we read from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Let's pray. As we consider these commands, these words to Abraham, and as we saw in your word last week how the ultimate fulfillment of this, you provided for us in Jesus. And so in Jesus, we too take part and give thanks for your faithfulness to your covenant with Abraham. We too celebrate all of this and we too can gain from your word here and understand and better live in light of who you've called us to be and who you've created us to be. God, as we encounter you through your word this morning, I pray that it would prove effective for correction and rebuke and that it would challenge us in those areas of our lives where we need challenging, and that it would encourage us in those areas of our lives where we need encouraging. But ultimately, that it would move our feet in obedience. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So the call on Abram's life was that clear and concise word of God, which moved his heart in faith and which moved his feet in obedience. That was what we started with a couple of weeks back in Genesis 12 at the call of Abram, where God said, go from your country, your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So no direction, no clear destination and in verse 2, God says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
And as we saw in the context of the greater book of Genesis and everything that took place before that, we saw the people of Babel seek to make a name for themselves. And in fact, that was their statement. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. And we saw them punished in God's judgment. And now we see that it's only through pursuing God's way and following in obedience to God's call and God's word that a name can truly be made great. But our name is not made great for ourselves or purely our indulgence, but our name is made great for God's glory to be made known. And so that's why he says, go from your country. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God continually reestablishes, reaffirms the covenant and restates the promise to Abram as he's going through the land, as he goes on his own little sojourn to Egypt, following his own way. So this call and this promise that we read here, again, in 17, is a reflection, a reaffirmation of what God promised when he originally called Abram, and when Abram moved in obedience and in response to God's word and God's word alone. You see, the call and the promise are not just the beginnings of the people of Israel, but the beginnings of us as the people of God. For as we saw last week, the one who would eventually be the fulfillment of this blessing was Jesus. Therefore, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as we come to see later, they bear much fruit for our lives as believers today because we see this truth in Romans 15. Verses 4 through 6, for whatever was written in former days was written for your instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And Paul goes on to say in chapter 15, the Romans, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. And so God's word brings us together in harmony. And in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have much to learn from the call, from the struggle, from the growth, from the obedience of Abraham. For God, through the divine inspiration of his Holy Spirit, has written it for our instruction. The very purpose of bringing us for the very purpose of bringing us hope, both through endurance and encouragement of God's word. And so what is made abundantly clear here in the story of Abraham and God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham is that in order to be in covenant relationship with God, one must be declared righteous by God. And that that righteousness can only come from God. It is only an act and a work of God. So those who have been declared righteous to this point, as we've seen in our journey, our, our survey of the book of Genesis, have been declared righteous by God's grace and through faith, through their faith in God and the truth of his word. Thus, we have seen God's standard of righteousness put forth and upheld. So in his sealing of the covenant with Circumcision, God called on Abraham to walk before him blameless, as we read. 
That is to walk in complete obedience. Now, before we move forward and dive into further into this morning's text, I want to once again read a portion of what we've already read. I want to set things up by focusing on the part of on that part of last week's text, which we've already read. So again, chapter 17 of Genesis, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram's response, Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, and God goes on to reaffirm the covenant, as I've already stated. So I pointed out to us last week the significance of this title, which God uses for himself here, El Shaddai, God Almighty, the one who has all power and makes all things come to be. That is how God introduces himself here. And then tells Abram to walk before him blameless. Now that should give us a moment of pause and cause us to furrow our brow. Because we've already seen how Abram possessed and displayed great faith in God's word, yes. But we've also seen how susceptible Abram has been to the sinfulness of his heart and the desires of his flesh. So how is he to walk blameless before God Almighty when despite God's consistent and constant faithfulness being displayed in very tangible ways, Abram has displayed this struggle to grow in faith as we detailed last week. See, this call to complete obedience is not rooted in Abram's own ability, but in the way that God introduces himself. El Shaddai, that is who he is. God Almighty, the one who makes things come to be and has the power to make things come to be. Therefore, as long as Abram submits to him and walks according to his word and his authority by his power, then and only then will he be able to fulfill his command. You see, we cannot separate the command from the God of the command. Yet this is the exact problem that our ancient Israelite brothers and sisters would come to face as their faith would develop and as God would continually tell them to walk according to his word and to walk blameless with him. And as they looked past the God Almighty of the command and then they boiled the commands down to a list of do's and don'ts. And so we see God calls us to steadfast obedience for the purpose of deepening our dependence on him and focusing our hearts on his glory. And that's our first point this morning. The emphasis here is not on who is fulfilling the call, who is fulfilling the command. The emphasis is on who's giving and making it even able for Abram to fulfill the command. See, God calls us to steadfast obedience for the very purpose of deepening our dependence on him. Because we cannot fulfill that command on our own. We cannot walk before him blameless on our own. 
But he does so to focus our hearts, our sinful hearts, which are turned away from him. And he does this to turn our hearts back to him and focus our hearts on his glory. The very fact that we cannot keep the law in and of ourselves was intended to push Israel into deeper dependence on God's grace and deeper faith in his covenant. Therefore, Abraham's response to this address from God is what? To submit himself, not just in word, but in a full posture of submittance by falling on his face before God. Because if you'll recall, just before this in chapter 16, we detailed this last week as well, we see Abram and Sarai trying to fulfill God's promise by their own means and by their own intellect. So as we consider this call from God on Abraham, may we too, in a posture of full submission, fall on our face before God in the realization that it is only by submitting to his power and his work in our lives that we can be declared righteous, blameless, and obedient. As it was with Abraham, so it is with us as the people of God, as his church. See, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. You can go ahead and turn there. Keep your finger there in Genesis because we're coming back. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving an explicit instruction for what it looks like to live out faith in his kingdom. And the conclusion that we come to easily in Matthew 5 and throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount going all the way to chapter 7, the conclusion that we can easily draw from all that Jesus has to say is that life in his kingdom looks vastly different than from life in our earthly kingdoms or even life in our own little kingdoms. So in roughly the middle of his sermon, Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 is teaching on loving your enemies. And this is where he makes the famous statement, verse 43 of Matthew 5, verse 43, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So this is the common pattern. We'll pause right there. This is the common pattern which Jesus follows in his Sermon on the Mount. He'll say, you've heard it said, and then give reference to the Old Testament law, and then followed by him taking the Old Testament law to the extreme in his kingdom. Because as Jesus also taught, he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And so what he's outlining here is how in his kingdom, this is to be lived out in totality. And so he says, so here Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19.18, where we see love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Then he says, ha, watch this. In my kingdom, I say to you, love your enemy so that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, this will distinguish you as children of God. See, Jesus continues by elaborating on this point. Verse 46 there, Matthew 5. For if you love those who love you, 
What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus is saying, even the tax collectors, those who are cheating you, those who you hate, those who steal your money, they love you because you're providing them with money. So they want to see you flourish so that they can get more money because you're, they are directly benefiting from you. So even the pagans, those who don't believe, do the same. Even they love those who provide something for them. He says, also, if you only greet your brothers, you are excluding all those who are outside of that circle. And Jesus says, the Gentiles do that. If that's how you live, you're no different than them. Then Jesus set the standard in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, wait. Not only does that sound familiar, but again, it's another moment in which how can Jesus set the standard of perfection when we know he alone was perfect? Well, that's exactly the point. In order to be in relationship with God, you must be like your father, perfect. Therefore, only those who submit to and trust in the perfect son, Jesus, can be declared righteous and holy and blameless. See, Jesus' words echo the Father's words all those years ago to Abraham. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Jesus here is saying that God, the Almighty Father's standard, hasn't changed. Not since Abraham. Not since Babel. Not since Noah. Not since Cain nor since our first parents, Adam and Eve. The standard for those who would be in right relationship with God is to be made perfect by God. Because as we press on into the story, you can turn back to to Genesis now, we begin to see this repeating pattern in Abraham's life of submission and then drifting and sin and repentance and submission and so on and so forth. So as last week, we analyzed Abram's faith as it was refined through his struggle in Egypt, and then it was developed through prayer upon return to the promised land and grown in obedience immediately after this moment where the covenant is sealed with circumcision, we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah a detail clearly included by Moses for the purpose of showing the stark contrast of those who are in covenant relationship with the Lord and those who willingly pursue the desires of their flesh. You see, obedience to God's word distinguishes the people of God from the people of the world. Obedience to God's word distinguishes the people of God from the people of the world. See, in chapter 18 here of Genesis, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, we see that what awaits those who willingly live in a way, in the way of our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Abraham, God is purposing to set apart for himself a people that will be set apart from the rest of the world. 
for the express purpose of declaring the knowledge of his glory to all the surrounding nations. And there's a clear warning in the example of Sodom and Gomorrah for us to hold tightly to the truths of God's word when it comes to his created order and how he has commanded us to live. Because if you'll remember, as they were leaving, and last week as we saw this dispute between Lot's uh, herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen, Lot chose and went away from Abram toward the known sinful city of Sodom. And it's already gotten him in trouble once, but here we see that when the cultural tides which move to and fro with every whim, attack the household, the very foundation of spiritual development by declaring that marriage is not simply between one man and one woman. We do not get swept away with the tide because we hold firm to the foundation of God's word. When those same cultural tides attempt to undermine our identity of being made in the image of God with intentionality and purpose by saying that the creation of male and female is not absolute truth, we stand firm on the truth of God's word. Yet this is the very thing which Lot chose to go and make his camp amongst. So one of the details which strikes me about Genesis 18 and the, so- and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is the incredible way in which Moses portrays the continued shift of Lot and Abraham. You see, the Lord and two angels come to Abraham and Sarah to tell them the details behind the coming of Isaac, their son, and how God would fulfill the covenant promise through a biological son, through Sarah. Afterwards is when we read, the angels looked down towards Sodom. And so we see there in Genesis 18 the same language that we have in the story of Babel. When God said, come, let us go down and see. So these angels, they look down towards Sodom and Abraham goes with them to set them on their way. But this is what catches my attention. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. See, here in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, if we needed any further evidence that we are saved and sustained by God's grace alone, then we look no further than how Abraham, despite all that he has seen and all that God has revealed to him, falls into sin once again. Because Abraham now witnesses, he pleads on behalf of the city. And he essentially, because of his pleading with God, saves Lot. And God rescues Lot because of Abraham's pleading, giving us a clear example of the power and the impact and the necessity of prayer. But also, as we move through chapter 19 and we look at chapter 20, we see Abraham fall into sin once again as he sticks to the same script that he initially used in Egypt. See, just as God used fallible men to write his infallible word, so too do we see and we read in his word of how God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. Because despite Abram seeing 
the destruction of an entire city because of sin. Despite him only being five generations removed from the Tower of Babel and knowing what happened there because of their pride and sinfulness. Abram, Abraham now, still falls into trying to pursue things his own way in chapter 20. So just to make sure we're tracking, let's recap. Last week, we left off with the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant and the symbol of the covenant being that of circumcision, a permanent reminder of the call and of the promise and covenant that God had declared to Abraham. And this was immediately following the shameful mistake which Abram made with Sarai. And then in choosing to have Abram take Hagar, there was no counsel with God, no word of his covenant, and therefore they tried things their way instead of trusting in God's promise to provide them a son by his grace and to give the promised land as an inheritance. So then this establishment of circumcision as a reminder of the covenant was explicitly preceded by the command, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And yet, as we've seen and already established that this was not supposed to be rooted in Abram or Abraham's ability, but that he was supposed to submit to the authority of the one who is giving the command. Yet here in chapter 20, despite all of this, we see Abraham again having to lie to conceal Sarah as his wife. And again, we see the communication between him and God in regards to this sojourn is silent. You notice Abraham in chapter 20 does not consult with God on where he's going, what he's doing, does not, and he uses the exact same script as he did in Egypt. And God is silent until God intervenes, just as he did in Egypt, in speaking to, this time, to Abimelech. So our final point from last week was that the ongoing reward of our righteousness is God's glory. So God is increasingly glorified in us as we grow in our faith. And how do we grow in our faith? Well, we also saw last week our faith is refined through struggle, developed through prayer, and grown through obedience. So what we're witnessing here in chapter 20 is Abraham's continued process of sanctification. That is, of being made holy. He's growing in his faith. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is our justification. This is what makes us able to be declared righteous before a holy God. But this is not the end. This is not where our faith stops. Our faith does not cease the moment we come to faith. This is only the beginning of our new life. And therefore, learning to walk in obedience is our sanctification. This is the process of God working in us and through us and through his word, making us holy. So once again, we see Abraham struggle, and while God's word is absent on his end, God is still clearly at work. Therefore, we, as the people of God, must plunge ourselves into the depths of God's word time and time again, because it is in walking in obedience to God's word and hiding God's word in our hearts and rooting ourselves in the truth of God's word that God is turning our hearts and shaping our lives and making us holy. 
because this is how he's commanded us to be, as blameless before him. So in chapter 20, Abimelech sends Abraham and Sarah away in obedience, as Abimelech responds in obedience to God through God's intervention. And the Lord fulfills his promise to Sarah and Abraham according to his word by providing them a child. And this part was just too beautiful for me to, to, to move over, so I, I really wanted, to, wanted you guys to see this. So in chapter 18, when God told Abraham that Sarah will be the one who will provide him an heir, Sarah's eavesdropping from inside the tent. And she laughs at what God says. She thought this was ridiculous. She said, in my old age, shall I give Abraham a son? And upon hearing this, upon hearing Sarah laugh, God confronts and asks, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah, now scared, says, I didn't laugh. To which God says, oh no, you did laugh. But here's the beautiful part, which I wanted to share. So in chapter 21, when Isaac is born, Sarah cries out in worship. Chapter 21, verse 6. Sarah cries out in worship, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So, in chapter 17, well before Sarah laughed inside the tent, immediately after establishing circumcision as the official sign of the covenant, God tells Abraham that the child's name will be Isaac, which means laughter. So God, in 17, tells them that their child's name will be laughter. Upon telling them the exact detail of how he's going to fulfill the covenant, Sarah laughs, denies it, and then God calls her on it. And then she sees God's plan unfold and God's provision and faithfulness in the eyes of her baby son. And she says, God has provided laughter for me. So this brings us to chapter 22. And this is where we'll set our camp for this morning, where we'll see and continue to see that God not only knows every detail of our lives, but has sovereignly ordained it for accomplishing his purposes and bringing the knowledge of his glory to the world. So chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now those two verses, again, should give us pause and cause us to furrow our brow because we've gone through all of this. We've seen God's faithfulness in light of both Abraham's obedience and disobedience. We've seen God's promise in chapter 12. We've heard God declare that this promise would be fulfilled in Isaac. Now, God is directing Abraham to go and sacrifice the very son that he had waited for, the very son that God had promised and provided in his own timing. 
And did you notice the similarity between God's command here and God's call to Abram back in chapter 12? See, at his original call, Abram was simply told, go to the land that I will show you. Then what was one of the first things that Abram did when he arrived in the land? He began to set up altars to worship the Lord. Now, very similarly, he's told, go to the land of Moriah, to the mountain that I will tell you. So he doesn't know exactly where in the land, but at least this time he's got a little bit clearer picture. And offer up Isaac as a sacrifice on one of the mountains that I will show you. See, oftentimes our faith is grown in the most, our faith has grown most during times of great testing, great struggle, great adversity. Because what is Abraham, Abraham's response? See, Abraham's response is no different than when he first responded to the call of God. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. What was Abraham's response? To respond in complete obedience to God's word. You see, steadfast obedience requires willing sacrifice. In order to grow in faith, in order to walk in obedience to God's word, we must be willing to sacrifice everything that it may cost us for the sake of knowing him and making him known. Jesus, detailing the cost of following him to his disciples, tells them in Luke 15. Luke 15, if you're taking notes, you can just write that off to the side. Luke 15, verse 25. Jesus says here, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned aside, and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? In other words, the life of faith is a costly one. And it may cost us the most valuable relationships we have. It may cost us our own life, but the cost will have been worth it for the reward of Christ glorified in and through us. And this is why James 2 compels the dispersion. In James chapter 1, verse 2, if you're taking notes. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, sanctified. You see, this is a part this, of the process of our sanctification, of God making us holy because it is his work at work in us. We see even from the early days of our faith that in order for our faith to increase, we must prepare ourselves to endure because in the testing of our faith, we are challenged to lean even harder into the power and the provision and the providence of El Shaddai, God Almighty. And so as we continue reading, we see Abraham's response. Again, we saw it there 
in chapter 3. Abraham rose early. He saddles the donkey. He takes two young men with him. He gets his son Isaac. He cuts the wood for the burnt offering. He does everything to walk in obedience to God's call. So just as he had done the very first moment he believed, Abraham moved in obedience to God's word and God's word alone. And just as in his first call, he didn't have all the details and the outcome was not clear. However, this did not hinder his response of obedience because delayed obedience is disobedience. This is another thing that we can take from Abraham, that delayed obedience is disobedience. That we, as the people of God, as his church here at Southside, would be known not just for being a people of the book, but a people who live by the book. And let it be known that the movement of God happening here is not because of one person or personality, but because we, as God's church, could not help but respond to the direction of God in his word. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. We go on reading here in the story of chapter 22. On the third day, so they've been traveling. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. A statement of complete faith in knowing that God was going to provide a way in this time. Because he says, I and the boy will come again. And Abraham, verse 6, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood on the altar, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And just as Abraham laid the wood across the back of Isaac, causing him to bear the weight of his own sacrifice, so Jesus bore not only the weight of our sin, but also the weight of every instrument of his torture, the cross. In John 19, verse 17, turn there. John 19, 17, we see this very truth. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place 
called the place of, the, of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So as Abraham prepared to follow God in obedience, even if it meant sacrificing the very son which he had longed for and which God had promised and provided, the angel of the Lord stopped him. And as he looked there, behind him was a ram caught and ready for the offering, just as he told those servants who came with them. The boy and I will return. And just as Abraham had reassured Isaac the Lord would provide, the Lord provided. And therefore, Abraham memorialized the place as Yahweh Yireh. The Lord provides. So just as Abraham reassured Isaac that God would provide an offering, he has provided that ultimate offering of atonement for our sins in Christ that we may join the voices of those in Revelation 5, 12 and sing with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We too were guilty, ready, prepared, deserving to bear the weight of our own sacrifice and needing to pay the pr price for our sin. And yet, the Lord provided the lamb. The Lord provided the sacrifice of Christ. And this is where we see the work of Christ on the cross is our anchor. The work of Christ on the cross is our anchor. The obedience and the perfection of Jesus are what we submit to and that is how we are then made holy is that as we continually submit to the obedience of Christ, as we continually submit to his working in our life, as we continually submit to his working in us through his word, that is how we walk before him blameless. Not by anything that we can do, but what he has already done. And finally, we read this in Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The work of Christ on the cross is our anchor because Christ is what anchors our hope. He has accomplished everything needed for our perfection and it is only through submitting to his work and his work alone that we can be made right and justified before a thrice holy God. On our own, we cannot accomplish perfection. Therefore, the perfection of Christ has been credited to all those who have been called by God's grace to submit to him.
the question is for us, is that what he is doing in your heart? How is he calling you to himself to submit to the work of Christ on the cross? And then how are you walking in that in obedience for your sanctification? We'll move now into a time of reflection in which we will ask ourselves those questions and respond accordingly. Let's pray. God, as we consider these truths and everything that you have accomplished for us in Christ, we ask that you would help us to daily, for those who have already submitted to your call for salvation in our lives, we ask that you would help us to daily walk in obedience so that you, through your work and through your word, can sanctify us, make us holy because we cannot do it on our own. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not responded in obedience to your call for salvation, that as you've been drawing them to yourself, revealing to them the error of their ways and the brokenness of this world and how we all pursue our own way of trying to get out of brokenness, but you have revealed to us in Christ, you've already provided a way and it is the only way. I pray that you would move their heart, turn their heart in repentance to believe in you by grace through faith. For those of us who are saved, move us in obedience by full submission to your power, God Almighty. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.